That's Malachi chapter 3, starting from verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at God's word together. Father God, we pray as we uh, think about um, uh, a topic close to all of our hearts, uh, money and what we do with it. Uh, We pray that you would give us hearts that are open to your truth. But we pray also, perhaps more than that, that you would give us a, a longing to be fully human, to flourish as human beings, and an understanding that as those made in the image of a generous God, that the richest, fullest life is a life marked not by accumulation, but by generous self-sacrifice. We ask this that the Lord Jesus might be glorified amongst us. Amen. What do you cut back on when times are tight? What do you, as you think about budgeting, uh, I mean, horrific news about the energy prices. They're talking about, uh, for many families, it'll go from being an average of something like £1,300 last year to £4,200 perhaps next year. When you think about your budget, if you get that far, or just the, the money you've got, and you know you've got to cut, what do you cut? The, the BBC run has been running a, a number of articles about the cost of living crisis. Uh, one I read um, just a, a few days ago, the, I mean, you can almost play bingo with this. You know, how many of these things have you found yourselves already cutting back on? 84% of people apparently are spending less on clothes for themselves. Uh, 72% travel less to meet up with family or friends. Uh, 72% putting off big purchases. There's a picture of a house goes with the article. I mean, ha, ha, ha. I mean, who's doing that? Uh, trips in the car again. Who owns one of those these days? Cutting back on spending less on clothes, um, less on hair and beauty products. Um, some would say some of us need to spend a bit more, but there we go. The uh, fewer nights out, 68%. Um, not, not leaving electronic devices on, uh, on the zombie charge. Uh, apparently that's about 72% of people. Uh, cutting back on subscription services, Netflix and, and that sort of thing, 57%. My favorite was the naughty one. Uh, all of those were, were pretty standard, but one of them was naughty. Now, when I was younger, the naughty thing, the kind of low-level naughty thing, that if you ever had to admit something, it was uh, sometimes I take stationery from work. That was ooh, naughty, but not that naughty. But apparently the new version is that 64% of people, so that's two-thirds of you here if you're an average group, are not charging your electronic appliances at home. You're taking them into work and plugging in everything there. I mean, nervous laughter. Look, the cost of living crisis is no joke for many of us here. 
But the call of Malachi 3 is trust God and keep giving even when the squeeze comes. Now, there is no crude equation in the Bible between give and God will make you rich, whatever they say on the internet sermons. There is no equation like that. There is, though, the promise that as we lean in to trust God, we'll find he is faithful to provide all that he has promised. And I guess the question for all of us tonight, in particular those of us who call ourselves Christians, is whether we will lean in and live out that truth. Will we keep giving? God's word reminds us, God is the generous giver, and you were made in his image. That means you are not living a full, flourishing, rich human life unless you're giving generously, because you're made in the image of the generous God. It's something we need to urgently hear when we're bombarded with messages of fear about the cost of living crisis. Okay, we're going to work through um, Malachi 3. You've got uh, the points just there on the sheet. Let's start uh, at verse 6. The unchanging Lord calls his fickle people to turn back. So we've been working through Malachi, seeing these disputations, these accusations Malachi brings against God's uh, faithless people. And here is is the fourth disputation. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how will we return? How are we to return? In one sense, you've got the whole history of Israel, really, in these two little verses. There are two contrasting characters. Firstly, there is the unchanging God. He's never once failed to be all that he's promised to be. He made a covenant with Israel through their forefather, Abraham. He promised he would be their God that he would protect, that he would provide, that he would bless and that he would forgive. And not a day goes by in the whole history of the Old Testament when he has failed to be that God. Again and again, no matter how badly his people treat him, no matter how far away they wander, God never fails to be that God for them because God never changes. And so they are not destroyed. Now, the other character in verse 7 couldn't be more different, the ever-changing people. One minute, they're throwing away their idols and devoting themselves to the one true God. The next minute, they're burning their own children to death in the fire to worship the perverted gods of the surrounding nations. And surely as one nation, one generation worships God, the next one can't be bothered with him and rejects him. That's the story of the Old Testament, a faithful, unchanging God and a faithless, changeable people. It's like the difference between uh, the weather in Britain and southern Europe. Now, sometimes the weather here is fabulous. And if you like sunshine and you don't have a lawn to worry about, so that's kind of all of us, then actually this summer has been pretty good. But there are other times when you go on holiday in Britain and for two weeks, the weather is character building. No such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing, as your parents tell you on those holidays. But in southern Spain, from May to September, you can guarantee it's going to be sunny. 
that's it. You don't bother with a weather app in southern Spain. It's just, it's either hot or whew, really hot. But it's always hot and it's always sunny. The weather is reliable there. Unchanging. Faithful, you could say. And I know it's not a perfect analogy, but basically God is like the, the sunshine in southern Spain rather than the sunshine in Britain. That's what he's like. Now, of course, uh, God's purpose here as he tells the people this, that he is faithful unlike them, is not just to give a history lesson, but to call this generation, Malachi's generation, to come back to God, to turn back from the misery and the self-harm that is sin, and instead to enjoy the forgiveness and the blessing that comes when anybody turns back to God. The response of the people is not encouraging. But you ask, well, how are we to return? I think they're saying, well, I don't think we've done anything wrong. I mean, how are we supposed to turn back when we haven't turned away? How are we supposed to say sorry when we don't know what we've done? How, how are we supposed to change if we're not sure what things we're meant to change? I mean, we've seen through Malachi, they've been disobeying God in just enormous numbers of ways. But here, they're like the petulant partner who says, well, sorry for whatever it is that I've done that's obviously so annoyed you. Now, we'll see how God answers their petulant, disingenuous question in a moment. But for now, just look at what we learn about God at the beginning here. He does not change. Now, that is good news. That means you can put your trust in this God. When he promises something, he will do it. God is not going to wake up tomorrow and say, yeah, look, I know I said I'd always be with you, even when you're going through cancer or some terrible health crisis. But I've got to be honest, I'm just not feeling it today. You're on your own. He's just not like that. But we can be more specific. These verses home in on one particular aspect of God that doesn't change. And that is his attitude to people who turn back to him. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Because he's unchanging. There was never a day in Israel's long history when God rejected those who turned back to him. And the same is true tonight. One of Jesus' rightly most famous parables is the prodigal son. And at the heart of the, the story of the prodigal son, he tells, is of a father, a wonderful, generous father, whose wicked younger son wishes him dead and wastes his money on prostitutes. But the moment that son turns back, the father comes running, comes running to meet him and throws arms around him and welcome him back into the family. Now, I don't know everybody here this evening, so I don't know how far some of you are from God. But I do know with absolute certainty that no matter how far you are from him and no matter how many times you've run off, if tonight you will turn back to him, he will return to you. He will welcome you with open arms, with forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. So turn back to him. Secondly, failure to tithe is robbery from God. So the, the, the people have asked back this ridiculous, well, how are we to return God question? And God answers this carping voice in a rather surprising way. Verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. 
Now, there are lots of sins God could have picked. We've seen a number of them if you've been here for the last few weeks. But he accuses them of just one thing, which is robbery. (laughs) How on earth do you rob God? You can't mug him in the streets. You can't break into heaven. He hasn't got an online account you can hack. I mean, how do you rob God? Well, his answer is, well, tithes and offerings, verse 8, or not bringing the whole tithe, verse 10. Now, there is a specific point to be made about tithes, but there is a more general point first, which is that money matters. It's interesting. Uh, Jesus speaks about money more than any other temptation or struggle. And he does that probably because money has the ability to appear more godlike than any other thing. And therefore, we're more likely to end up placing our trust not in God, but in money rather than in anything else. Money is more likely to absorb our trust because money, money can be so godlike. Money can give us security, power, meaning, hope for the future. Money can almost give us so many things that only God can truly give us that the Bible warns us repeatedly to be very, very careful with money. And our attitude to money is really, it's a spiritual x-ray. It reveals what's going on in our hearts, what our attitude to God truly is. And the failure of the people to honor God by giving, it reveals on the x-ray charts, hearts that just don't trust God. It's it's possible to, to fake trust in God as we sing and declare wonderful words that I trust in you, Lord. It's much, much harder to fake sacrificial giving. That's the general point. Money matters. Now, the specific issue here is tithes and offerings. And I promise I will explain it briefly if you concentrate. But if the eyes glaze over while I explain the technicalities, I'm just going to go on. Deal? Great. Right. Let me, uh, let's uh, pull up this uh, text from Deuteronomy. I'll read it relatively quickly. This is from the law of God as he sets up what's going to happen when the people move into the land. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe, that's the tenth, of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. So you may learn to reveal the, revere the Lord your God always. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. So the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Very briefly, three things you learn there. Three things that are the reason for the tithe. The tithe is for celebrating God's goodness, like like the old harvest Thanksgiving service. So they used the, the tithe to have a big celebration. Secondly, to provide for the priests and Levites who serve God full time. So the the tribe of the Levites and the priests, they serve God full time so they don't have any other work. And thirdly, to help the poor who have no other provision. Now, the tithe was not a tax. A tax is where I have this income, but a bit of it I have to give to the government. The tithe is different. It's a recognition that all of it actually belongs to God. So Psalm 24.1 declares, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And ancient Israel is an agricultural land. God gave them the land. God gave them the sunshine and the rain on the crops. God gave them the bodily health to work the the land. God gave them security from the enemies who might attack them and destroy their crops. 
Everything comes from God. So as King David puts it in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, as they gather in the offerings, everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. That's the truth. So as they loaded up their carts to take a tenth of all their produce to the temple, they weren't to think, I cannot believe it. I have to give 10% of my hard-earned cash to God. Said they're to think, wow, what a generous God. Everything comes from him. Everything rightfully belongs to him. And yet, he says, you have 90% of it. So, when the people of Malachi's day denied God the tithe, they are robbing God of what is rightfully, truly his. Okay, what about you and me today? Now, we're no longer bound by the Old Testament law. And the New Testament writers never actually call on Christians to tithe. Hooray, you say. <laughs> Cancel the direct debits. Not quite so fast. The foundational principles are the same. Every penny in my bank account and yours belongs to God. Every penny. And secondly, we too are called to enjoy the privilege of enabling the celebration of God in church, of supporting the work of the gospel and relieving the needs of the poor. Uh, Paul sets out, if you're interested, the, uh, the principles of our giving. You can read more about them if you pick up one of the giving leaflets, which uh, goes into more detail on 2 Corinthians 8 to 9, where Paul just says, look, our giving as Christians is to be sacrificial, it is to be joyful, and it is to be generous. And so tithing is kind of like stabilizer wheels on a child's bicycle. It's there to help you get going. But after a while, you get rid of them, and you, you want to go a bit faster and, and learn some tricks. Well, likewise, Christians quite often start by giving 10%, and as a child, that's probably pennies, like Kit was telling us. But as you grow in maturity, as you grow in confidence that God provides, as you grow in awareness of God's generous forgiveness, well, usually Christians want to try to give more than that as they're able. Certainly, it would be a bit odd if being under the grace of Jesus led us to give less than being under the law of Moses. So failure to tithe is, a, is robbery from God. We'll get to the implications in just a moment as we look at point three, where God says, give him his due and you will receive his abundance. Give the Lord his due and you will receive his abundance. So if you remember from that text in Deuteronomy 14, the Israelites were encouraged to feel, fulfill, excuse me, fulfill their obligations of tithing and they were encouraged, so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And Malachi picks up on this language, this idea that was built into the law of God in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Put the Lord to the test. It's really the verse we, we began with, Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Bless the one who takes refuge in him. Malachi is calling the people. He's saying, look, do what God has commanded and just see. He will do what he has promised. It's a very serious challenge then, the circumstances. Do you see the comments in verse 11 about uh, pestilence and, 
and fruit trees dropping their fruit too early. It indicates there seems to be a lack of rain and an abundance of pests and problems with the harvest. The people are seriously feeling a cost of living crisis. That is a time when we try to make savings. And for Malachi's day, for the people of his time, the obvious saving to make is, well, if God doesn't want us to give a, to have a full harvest, clearly he can't expect a full tithe. Am I right? So I think we're just going to have to cut that down this year, just this year. When God starts providing a full harvest, then I'll be delighted to bring a full tithe in. And God says, try me, test me, give it a go. And what does he promise those who do? I will, pour, I will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room to store it. I remember a few years ago going to visit another church in London and the pastor opened this very passage and encouraged us all to give as the plate was being passed around and said, if you give to God your full tithe, you will be rich. That was the word he used, rich. Your bank account will overflow if you tithe fully, as God says here. Trust his word. Is that right? Does that promise apply to you and me today? Well, there are two questions we've got to ask if we want to understand God's word responsibly here. Firstly, is it a general promise to all God's people or is it some specific promise to one group of people at one time? Well, the verse, verses 10 to 12, they, they do seem to pick up the language of the law of God, Deuteronomy, the, God's treatment of all his people. So it does seem to be a general promise for all God's people. But there is a second question we need to ask before we can do what that pastor did. Has anything changed with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we in exactly the same position as those people? And of course, Everything has changed with Jesus. The whole Bible pivots on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the Old Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Now the Old Covenant under Moses, it was tied to a specific ethnic group, the Israelites, living in a specific land, the land that was called Israel. And it provided for abundant crops when you obeyed God and famine and pestilence when you turned away from him. But it was always a signpost pointing to the great ultimate blessing of God giving us his son. Under the new covenant, God's people come from every nation. And there's no particular land that could have great crops. Under the new covenant, it's the obedience of Jesus, not the obedience of his people, that, that wins the blessings. Now, God is still the one who provides all our material needs. But under the new covenant, we're told we have every spiritual blessing now. But we wait, we wait for every physical blessing in the new creation. And so there is no simple equation. I can't make this clear enough. If you've been told silly lies by ministers on the internet driving flash cars and in sharp suits, then I'm sorry, but 
don't blame God when those promises don't come true. There is no equation in the Bible. If you give lots to God, God will give lots back to you. There is no promise in the Bible when you read it responsibly that says that. So please don't believe those lies and then get disappointed with God. Okay, so Jesus is the centre of things in the New Testament. But what can we say about material stuff? Uh, Well, Paul encourages the Christians in Philippi with their giving by saying, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. What Kit said, his experience, years and years and years following God and giving, is God has been very generous. I remember uh, talking to my dad about money um, and giving when I was young, starting out in work and trying to find reasons not to give um, and to hang on to a bit more. And he said to me, I do not believe the prosperity gospel. It's a terrible lie to tell people, if you give, God will make you rich. But then he said, I have learned over the years that God is faithful and generous beyond anything I could have deserved. And I've never met a Christian who's been following God for decades, who wouldn't say the same. He's faithful and generous beyond anything we deserve. Malachi is a call to God's people. Trust God. Trust the God who provides by giving as he commands and see if he doesn't act in faithfulness to you all the days of your life. That's the call of Malachi. What do we do practically with it? Well, I really just got one thing to say, but there are three questions I want to ask, which is demonstrate the reality of your trust in him if you're a Christian. Do you know what a funambulist is? This is just a free bit of trivia for you. Funambulist, it's a tightrope walker. There you go. I'm in education. The most famous funambulist, you'll, you'll know this name though, is Blondin. Blondin was absolutely nuts, but he was a brilliant tightrope walker. And his most famous uh, series of stunts began on the 30th of June, 1859, when he had a 345-meter-long line stretched over the Niagara Falls, and he walked forwards and backwards. And then over the course of a number of days, he performed a series of outlandish stunts, including carrying a stove on his back, stopping halfway across, and cooking an (laughs) omelette. suspended over the Niagara Falls on one thin, narrow wire. At one point, he took across a wheelbarrow with 150 kilo weight in it. And he did that safely and said to the crowd, do you think I could do this with a person in the wheelbarrow? Yes, they all shouted. Who's going to get in? Absolute stony silence. Sometimes it can be easy to say, yes, I trust in Jesus. I love having my sins forgiven. Do you trust in Jesus, God asks me. Well, giving generously, actually opening my wallet, that's getting in the wheelbarrow. It demonstrates that my faith is genuine, that I'm willing to take a risk with this God. And look, if you've never got involved in the work, in giving to the work of the gospel here or at your own home church, or you haven't thought about your giving in a long time, then now's a great time to act, to demonstrate the reality of your trust in God. And wherever you are at with it, if you call yourself a Christian, let me give you three questions 
to help us as we all think and pray about how we might respond to Malachi's call. Firstly, what do my finances reveal about my attitude to God? What do my finances reveal about my attitude to God? Are they, actually, my finances are no different from my peers who don't believe in God? Or do they show that however imperfectly, I do desire to see God's kingdom grow more than that I just keep up with the latest gadgets? I do desire to be generous to those who have less. I do desire to reflect God's generous character in my stewardship. And I do trust. I do trust that God will provide. Why not do what Kit suggested and be vulnerable enough to let someone else discuss your finances with you? Not the church minister. Not a random stranger. But why not with one trusted friend? Be honest. Let them see what you earn, what you spend, what you give. Let them encourage you, challenge you. Our finances are a spiritual x-ray. Why not be open with one another? Second question, where am I exercising faith? God calls his people to trust him. Not to be foolish or reckless. It would be crazy to go into debt to give. That would be absolutely crazy to take out a high interest loan to give a, a sum of money to church or something like that. Be responsible, but exercise responsible faith. The question is, do I ever exercise faith with giving? Or is my giving the first thing that I cut, suspend for a month when an unexpected cost comes in? Exercise faith. Trust this God. He is generous. And thirdly, and in one sense most importantly, where have I seen God's abundant generosity? Because the truth is nothing unlocks my wallet more than experiencing God's generosity to me. If I remember and I celebrate how generous God has been to me at times in the past, I'll be motivated to give in the present and the future. So why not spend time as a family or with a close friend listing all the ways God has been generous to you spiritually, practically, financially, and praising him for it. Remind yourself you're made in the image of a very generous God. And part of what it means to be most fulfilled, most happy, most fully human is that we stand up and say, God, I want to join you. I want to be like you. I want to give like you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul encourages Christians to give generously, not by looking forward to what God will give, but by looking back. See, we're in a, we're in a much better position. God calls Malachi's generation, give and see if God won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out his blessing. We have seen we look back on the floodgates of heaven poured open and the richest gift given to us, not rain on crops, but God's own son come to die to save us from our sins. There can be no doubt this God is generous. We have already received. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor 
so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. People who get that are joyful and generous and sacrificial, just like God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you are generous. That when you call us to give, you are, you're calling us to be like you and to be fully human. And you're calling us to share what is truly yours and you have entrusted to us. We pray that we would enjoy the privilege of sharing what you have given to us so that those who have less might have more. Father God, we pray that you would help us to grow in faith, not the foolish faith that believes the silly promises will get rich, but the the deep rich faith that trusts you will always provide what your people need and more besides. And so we're willing to trust you and to give. We ask this for the good of those who need and for the glory of you, our great God. Amen.